Bibles and turn to John chapter 2 once again. John chapter 2. Now we're going to be uh, looking at, uh, we've we finally got through with John chapter 1, okay? We've got to look at John chapter 2 now, but we're not really going to look at the passage expositionally uh, today because there's something I think we need to uh, make sure that we understand here about this particular portion of Scripture. Uh, it is a controversial subject in which we're going to be dealing with today. It may not be controversial with you, uh, but I really sense that... Uh, uh, this, uh, even in Christianity and even in uh, uh, Baptist churches, uh, this is a, a confusing area. And I especially want our young people who will be facing uh, this particular uh, uh, subject uh, to uh, have what God's Word tells us about uh, this this morning. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at a controversial subject in, in this text, and this passage is often used as an excuse, I say an excuse, not a reason, but an excuse to partake in alcoholic drinking, for Christians to do so. And they say, well, you know, Jesus turned the water into wine, so it must be okay for me to have a beer or a glass of wine. And since this text is often the, the text that's used uh, and giving uh, when confronted with drinking, uh, uh, we want to look at this today. Did Jesus make alcoholic wine when he turned the water into wine? Now, many professing Christians believe that drinking is acceptable, of course, in moderation. Uh, this is true generally uh, for Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans, uh, and a growing number of emerging church evangelicals and even some so-called Baptists. For example, uh, the book, Listening to the Beliefs of Emerging Churches, Five Perspectives, it contains probably at least a dozen references to the joys of drinking alcoholic beverage. And the contributors are Karen Ward, Mark Driscoll, John Burke, Dan Gimble, and Doug Paget. Uh, these uh, you may or may not be familiar with. Some of the names may be recognizable if you uh, have uh, had any contact with uh, them uh, in reading and so forth. But uh, they meet in bars and taverns for theological discussions. And they exchange their beer-making techniques. That's like, uh, well... Uh, some other churches, there's one in Minneapolis called the Spirit Garage. That's the name of the church, the Spirit Garage. They, or they claim to have the biggest door. Uh, it's, I think it's a big garage door. But they meet in a, an old warehouse of some sort. But they meet in an Irish bar in downtown Minneapolis on Wednesdays for a weekly theological pub, a mix of biblical discussion and beer. Uh, there's a, a church, a Riverview Community Church in Holt, Michigan, has a river brew. Now, they, some of that uh, has, is, has to do with coffee, but uh, they don't make any uh, apology for it referring to uh, beer making either. They feature a home-brewed beer and religious discussion. 
Their milit- uh, uh, ministry leader, Brent Maxwell, says it's intimidating for someone to walk into a church having never been there. But if a friend invites you to go hang out, have a brew or two, and hang out with some guys from church, that's much less intimidating environment. And when asked what Jesus would drink, Maxwell replies, I believe he would sit down with people in the bar and he would drink what they're drinking. And he would be happy to do that. Well, is that what my Bible teaches? Is that what your Bible teaches? Now, uh, does the Bible teach something about that? Does it have something to say about this subject? Whether or not a Christian should drink alcoholic beverages? Uh, Is that the interpretation of this text here in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that Jesus, uh, saying Jesus turned the water into alcoholic wine. Some theologians, some preachers would say, yeah, I believe it was, but it was really not that strong, you know. Well, let's see what the Bible says. And so the first thing we'll look at is some Bible facts about wine. Some Bible facts about wine. And the first fact I want to give you is that it's a generic term. The word wine is a generic term. Uh, I mean, when we read this and we say, and it says uh, uh, there that uh, he turned the water into wine, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, we think an alcoholic beverage, because that's the way we've kind of been led to think about it. Is that the way it was thought of in the Bible? Sometimes it does mean grape juice. Sometimes it does mean alcoholic beverages, even in the Bible. Uh, And I have some verses here that I believe uh, where wine means fresh grape juice, the fruit of the vine, as it was called. And in Deuteronomy, excuse me, uh, Deuteronomy 11, verse 14, that I will give you the rain of your land in this due, his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. Second Chronicles 31, 5, as soon as the commandment came abroad, the children of Israel brought in an abundance of first fruits of corn and wine and oil and honey and of all the increase of the field the tithe of all things brought in in abundantly now in both verses there it talks about thy corn and thy wine did they bring in alcoholic beverage you know no it was the fruit of the vine and it was the grape juice that they had uh they gotten off of the uh their first fruits there Nehemiah 13, 15, in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses and as also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in that day wherein they sold victuals. Proverbs 3.10 says, So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst forth with new wine. Is that going to be an alcoholic fermented uh, wine right out of the press there? No, it's not going to be that. So it's a generic term there. Isaiah 16.10, And the gladness is taken away, and the joy out of the plentiful field. In the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be shouting. The treaders shall tread no out wine, no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. And then 1 Timothy 5.23, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake, 
and thine often infirmities. Now, a lot of people like to use that verse, too. Well, I'm going to just take a little little wine for my, my upset stomach, you know. By the way, grape juice is pretty good with that. Just plain old grape juice is healthy if it's not got all the sugar added to it and if it doesn't have all the preservatives into it, you know. Well, let's look at the uh, another Bible fact. The context will show what kind of wine. The context will show what kind of wine. Now, here at Spooner Baptist, you know that the context is important. How many of you know that the context is important? You know that? Come on. You should not have learned this decades ago. Woohoo! <laughs> Maybe you did not know. Oh, I'm getting back last week, aren't I? I've been trying to clear my brain out of some of those sayings that we heard over and over. Most of it was very, very good. I, I really appreciated his preaching, but uh, I thought some of those things were kind of humorous. But we know that context is very important. We should know that. Is wine referred to as a non-alcoholic or as an alcoholic? If it is referring to alcoholic wine, the context will give us that meaning. Now, in such cases, God discusses the bad effects and he warns us about it. For an example, there would be Genesis chapter 9 when Noah uh, he had his experience after the flood. It says in Genesis 9, 21, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. Now that clearly has got to be alcoholic a beverage. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 speaks of the same thing when it warns us, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now alcoholic wine is deceptive, but how? Well, in the very way that people are advocating today by saying, you know, drinking a little bit won't hurt you. You know, everyone admits that drinking too much is bad. Even the uh, liquor companies will say that. They have these advertisements, you know, uh, Bud Light and so forth. Drink responsibly, you know, like you're trying to tell us to do something Good when you're producing something so bad that's been such a uh, uh, a hurt to our society. However, that's very deceptive. Who knows how little to drink? You know, experts tell us that every person is different. It takes about an ounce to affect one, while more is necessary for another. And the same person would react to alcohol differently depending on the amount of food he has had, among other things. So the idea a little bit won't hurt is really deceptive. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In Proverbs 23, uh, verses 30 and 31, it refers to alcoholic wine because it tells us in the previous verses that those who drink it with uh, will have woe, They'll have sorrow, they'll have contentions, they'll have babblings, they'll have wounds without cause, and redness of eyes. And with that graphic description of those who tarry long at alcoholism, and then verses 32 through 35 continue the same description, and the context always makes it clear when alcohol is meant. 
But then Scripture also warns against the drinking of alcoholic wine. The Bible is very consistent on this, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the two previously quoted passages there, Proverbs 20 and verse 1, and then Proverbs 23 uh, and verses 29 through 35, those are good examples of scriptural warnings. Warnings against consuming alcohol. In Proverbs 23, 32, it says, At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. In verse 33, it shows us that it will cause one to look at strange women. Now that's someone that's not your wife. Okay? It'll cause you to look at strange women. It'll cause you to say perverse things or things which he w- you would not say if you were sober. Verse 34 pre- predicts that it will cause death, such as drowning or loneliness, such as dying upon the top of a mast. That's what the Bible says. In verse 35, it warns against numbness. It says, they have beaten me and I felt it not. It warns against addiction. It says there, when I shall awake, I will seek it yet again and again and again and again. That's addiction. Proverbs 31, verse 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, for, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. You see, the danger is very obvious there, isn't it? And by the way, Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 gives us the mo- probably the only legitimate alcoholic wine in the Scripture. It says there, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that are heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Now there, and I say with caution, the legitimate use of alcoholic wine, it was used as an anesthetic back in that day. It was used as a painkiller. Probably not so much today, is it? Uh, if you're a, you know, if you're a, if you watch the old westerns, they always gave a guy a, a bottle of whiskey. Here, take this and I'll pull the, I'll take the bullet out of you, you know. Here, take this. It was used as an anesthetic Of course, they didn't have painkillers like we have today. In our time, it would not be necessary to do this. Uh, We have many anesthetics uh, available to those who are dying. And then about the only available, uh, they're only available to the average person. The only thing that would be available to the average person in the Bible would have been some kind of alcohol. But alcohol is a depressant. It is not a stimulant, as some people think. Now, after one... Or several drinks, one gets dizzy, and then he'll pass out. And so this passage teaches that the alcoholic beverage would be only for the person who is ready to die. And there was no hope for his misery. And all that would be possible to ease his pain and help him forget his misery. But that's not a good reason for you and me to take it. You went whiffing, we've got a lot of misery, we've got a lot of pain. Oh yeah, I better have a little drink. No. Are you about, you're about to die? 
Another passage in the scriptures is Isaiah 5 and verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night till wine inflame them. Now, of course, that's alcoholic. It's very obvious there. Again, the context shows us that because it inflames. Why does he say, woe unto them? Well, verse 12 there in in Isaiah 5 answers, They regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Everyone knows that when one gives himself to drinking of alcoholic beverage, he will not be more spiritual, more desirous of learning the word of God. To the contrary, it causes a person to ignore the Lord. And then in Isaiah 5, verse 13 and 14, it reveals a couple of more serious results. People go into captivity. They become slaves to something or someone, and hell enlarges itself. You see, the drinking of alcoholic wine has caused hell to be enlarged. God does not want anyone to go to hell. And he's given the greatest, dearest gift that he possibly can to rescue sinners from hell. He never made hell for people. Do you know that? He never made hell for people. The Lord Jesus Christ said that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet, because of evil alcohol, hell has been an enlargement on an enlargement campaign. And so here's a clear warning against drinking alcohol because God does not want anyone to go to hell. Isaiah 28, 7 and 8 continues that warning. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They have swallowed up wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They err in judge, stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. <laughs> When's the last time a beer commercial came on your TV and they showed you that part of it? They don't show you that part. They just show everybody having fun, having going out, you know, and having a great time and, and everybody laughing and, and cheering and, and they're out on a boat or they're doing this. They don't show you the results of it the next morning. The Bible tells us about that, though. Isaiah 28, 7 and 8. What a tragic thing that even in the days of Isaiah, the priests and the prophets were engaged in this drinking of alcoholic wine. And so we see the problem of preachers recommending alcohol is not something new. And I've heard a few preachers even say, well, it's not, it's okay. You can have a little bit, just as long as you do it in moderation. 600 years before Christ, demon alcohol had worked its way even into religion. And then... The making of alcoholic beverages is not a strictly natural process. Another Bible fact. Many have taken for granted if you know you just took some juice from the grape and you leave it alone, you don't refrigerate it, well then automatically in time it'll turn into alcoholic wine. There are several reasons why this is not true. It takes more than time to make wine. Sometimes people try to defend its use by saying that it must be good because God made it. Don't believe that one either. But the fact is, God did not make it. Man has learned how to make alcoholic liquors through processes that he's invented. 
Winemakers know that one must have the correct amount of water, the correct amount of sugar, the right temperature to make the wine, and keeping grape juice in a refrigerator would prevent it from fermenting because the temperature is not, uh, not right. It's also interesting that hot tropical temperature would prevent fermentation. In the ancient days, before they had refrigeration, before they had vacuum sealing abilities, people learned to preserve the juice of the grape without turning it into alcoholic wine. Many people boiled it down into a thick syrup, and by doing so they would preserve it for long periods of time. And when they got ready to drink it, they would simply add the water to the consistency desired. In much the same way, we kind of add water to a frozen concentrate, you know. In the Bible, in Bible days, contrary to what many believe, it was not necessary for everyone to drink alcoholic wine as a table beverage. Well, they couldn't drink the water, so they had wine, right? No. That's not true. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this and all the process. And I recommend a book entitled Bible Wines and the Laws of Fermentation by William Patton. I have that book. More than a hundred years ago, this preacher was the only one in his town who believed in total abstinence. You know, that, he could have been living in Wisconsin, I think. Because I think there are probably some towns like that, aren't there? I'm glad I'm not the only one that believes that. But he saw that it was necessary to make an extensive study and see what the scriptures teach. Isn't that what we need to do about everything in life? See what the Bible says. Don't just say, well, I think, or so-and-so thinks. This book is the result of that labor, and it's the best thing on it I've read upon this subject. By the way, natural processes alone will produce fermentation under certain conditions, but these natural processes, if unaided by man, usually bring it to a vinegar state rather than a wine state. The alcoholic beverage industry is a very much a man-made thing. Now, we've pretty much covered a few of these Bible facts. There's many more that we could talk about, but what about this particular chapter here? I want to give you ten proofs, and don't be alarmed because they're not going to be long proofs. I'm not going to keep you a long time here, but ten proofs that Jesus did not make alcoholic wine. Number one is because of his holy nature. In Hebrews 7, 26, we read the Lord Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. No doubt the Savior being God in the flesh had an air of holiness about himself that he that could be seen by even the most casual observer. For instance, the profane soldiers who were sent to arrest him gave their reason for returning without him, they said, never a man had spake like this man. The words of Jesus were different. Hey, no doubt he had a very holy appearance. Now, there wasn't this glow about him all the time, but he did appear uh, uh, in his character and his speech. Why is that so important? Well, consider this illustration. The word cider may mean alcoholic beverage. The word cider. Or it could mean plain apple juice. Now, if you live back in the hills of Kentucky, it might mean 
alcoholic beverage, right? Suppose we lived in the 1920s, Prohibition days. We were approached by two people. They offer us a drink of cider. One of the people, one of the persons we knew to be the holiest man in town, a very faithful, godly man. He was separated from the world. He was diligent in his prayers. He was always witnessing to other people. But the other person is a known liquor dealer. If each one offered us a drink of his very own cider, we would assume that the man who was the godly man would give us apple juice, and we'd assume that the liquor dealer would give us cider that was liquor, that was fermented. Obviously, the character of a person influences what he does. And since the Lord Jesus Christ is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, we can safely assume that he would not make that which is called in Scripture a mocker and a deceiver of man. That which would cause untold misery. That's one reason I believe that Jesus did not make alcoholic wine. Another one is he would not contradict Scriptures. In Matthew 5, 17 to 18, Christ made it very clear. Think not that I am come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Therefore, Christ could not have contradicted Habakkuk 2.15. What's Habakkuk 2.15 say? It says this, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Now certainly Jesus knew that verses in the Bible, didn't he? He was well acquainted with the scripture since he is the word, and the word was written about him and by him. He did not come to violate the scripture, but he came to fulfill it. He could not have done so if he had not if he had made alcoholic wine and given it to his neighbor. Some people object to the use of that verse by saying, well, if you apply it only to the one who gives his neighbor drink for the purpose of looking on his nakedness. Well, that's not right. We must remember when one gives his neighbor something which is going to make him drunk. He's putting himself in the very class of those who do what would do so in order to look at their nakedness. And since the scripture commands us to abstain from all appearances of evil, we can be assured that the Lord Jesus would not have done something that would have been associated with an evil practice. Thirdly, scripture commands priests of God not to drink. Leviticus 10, 9, and 9 through 11. Do not drink wine or strong drink that it may be uh, may put a difference between holy and unholy, between cl- unclean and clean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken. Hebrews 2.17 calls Christ a merciful, faithful high priest. So we would expect him to obey all the scriptures pertaining to that office of priest. If he had made, a, a, a made or drank alcoholic wine, he would have disobeyed the Bible. Scripture also prohibits kings and princes to drink wine. We already read uh, Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. It is not for kings, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink. 
It's necessary for Christ to obey these verses too, since he is the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. In Matthew 27, 11, he admitted uh, to being a king of the Jews. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt to fulfill Zechariah 9, 9, which was prophesied that Israel's kings would enter, king would enter in the city in just that way. He was a king. He would have to obey Proverbs 31. Christ did not come to mock or deceive people. Christ did not come to deceive people. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says that wine does both of those things. Christ did not come to send people to hell. We've already looked at Isaiah 5 and verses 11 through 14. It teaches us that that hell had to be enlarged because of the drinking of alcoholic beverages. Christ did not come to send people to hell. Listen, John 3.17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ did not come to cast a stumbling block. Romans 14 and verse 21 teaches us that a person who gives another, uh, another person alcoholic wine does just that. It is not, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Everyone who studied the problem of alcoholism has learned that some people cannot handle uh, any amount of alcohol while others will they'll drink uh, two or, uh, or so uh, drinks and they'll stop. Experts do not know why this is true, but various theories have been propounded. Nothing has been proven to be true regarding every person. Some say, well, it's a chemical thing. Others say, well, it's psychological. Fact is, we do not we don't, do not know for certain. If any group of people there, are, uh, in any group of people, there are several potential alcoholics. And what a shame it would be for a person who has the potential of being a slave to it to get his first taste of wine at the Lord's table. Wouldn't that be terrible? And then they go down the road of misery to an alcoholic's grave. I certainly wouldn't want my children or my grandchildren to get their first taste of alcohol at a family meal. I had a young couple that was been coming to our church back in Indiana. They started coming. They were coming pretty regularly. They were very interested in the church. And then they uh, visited with him, and they were asking about the church and about joining the church. And so I gave them some some uh, documentation, some things about the church and so forth. And it had in there uh, about uh, not uh, not drinking alcoholic beverages. So, well, we don't agree with you on that because we like to have a little wine with our supper. What about the children? Are they going to have a little wine with their supper too? Well, needless to say, they didn't join our church. They kind of disappeared after that because I tried to, to direct them in the Bible way of what the Bible says about it. You know, who knows? If you let your children have a little taste, what lies ahead of them down the road? Christ did not come to cast a stumbling block. And then there's no requirement that wine in John chapter 2 be alcoholic. Nothing requires that it be alcoholic. Many insist that it was. 
But on the basis of John, they say so by on the basis of what it says in verse 10. You know, verse 10 says, Every man that beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast the good wine until now. They would say that in those days it was common to serve the best alcoholic wine first, saving the worst till later, when men's tastes have been dulled by much drinking. But the point is just the opposite here. These people could definitely recognize that the wine which Jesus made was much better than the wine that was served first. They weren't drunk. They hadn't lost their senses. This could not have even been possible since if they had been well on their way to being intoxicated. The fact is neither wine which they had at first nor that Christ made was alcoholic. And then the Lord Jesus would not have gotten the glory. If Jesus would have made drunk people drunker, he certainly wouldn't have received any glory. Verse 11 is most important when it states that by this miracle, Jesus manifested forth his glory. Verse 10 indicates the people had drunk quite a bit of whatever kind of wine they were drinking, but if it had been alcoholic, they would have been intoxicated, or nearly so. Had Christ made alcoholic wine, he would have made drunk people drunker and almost drunk people completely drunk. And such a deed would not have manifested any glory in him. And then finally, his disciples would not have believed more strongly. Verse 11 says, as a result of what he did in turning the water to wine, his disciples believed on him. John 1.41 tells us that they already believed on him as Messiah. This was a deepening of their faith. It was a proof that he, uh, they had not been wrong. Think about it. Would making drunk people drunker inspire faith? No, the opposite would be most likely. They were not looking for a Messiah who would pass out free booze. And because of this description of this miracle and its result, we cannot conclude anything otherwise than that this wine was non-alcoholic. And so you see, not only does Scripture not endorse the drinking of alcoholic beverages, but there is absolutely no reason to use John 2, 1 through 11 as an excuse to do so. Besides that, it is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Jesus would not do something that he tells us in other place we ought not to do. Listen, we're not to operate our lives by opinions and wishes of people. Just because someone thinks they know what the Bible says or doesn't say does not mean we are to follow their opinions. And my aim today has not been to give you my opinion, but to give you what the Bible says on this subject. And we could have said a whole lot more because there's a whole lot more said there. But I believe we can clearly see this love for alcohol, even by so-called Christians and Christian leaders, is certainly misguided. You know, if this scene teaches us anything, it tells us that Jesus chose to participate in this common, routine, everyday event. Jesus isn't just for Sunday. He desires and he deserves to be included in all areas of our life. You see, he is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all in your life. 
Never be guilty of attempting to exclude Jesus from any area of your life. By virtue of his sacrifice for us on Calvary, he deserves inclusion in all that we do and all that we are. Remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, What know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And if we are truly his, then we, he has access rights to everything. You know, some today here need to open up some of your life to God. You say, but preacher, I don't have a problem with drinking alcoholic beverages. No, you, but you need to stop holding back and give God access to some other area in your life. In too many lives, Jesus is left standing, looking uh, outside, looking in. Times when Jesus stands ready with a solution to your problem, but instead of butting in, he waits patiently. Nobody in this world may understand what you may be going through Maybe uh, today. You say, well, you don't know what struggles I go to. You know, if I take a little uh, sip of wine here, it kind of eases things down. No, don't do it. You say, nobody understands what I'm going through. You know what? Jesus does. And when he moves in your time of need and turns your darkness to day, when he lifts your burdens and shoulder, uh, uh, burden and shoulders your load, you know it and you'll never forget it. Now to everyone else, it's just wine. But to those who know the truth, it was a miracle. And it wasn't a miracle of turning water into an alcoholic beverage. What I want you to take home with you today from this message is Jesus is tied to the events of your life. He's not just some remote supernatural being who's totally removed from your needs. He cares about even the smallest details of your life. And we'll probably talk about that more in our next message, which I'm going to preach on John 2, verse 1 through 11 again. But look at it more of what it means. Matthew 10 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore ye are of more value than many sparrows. Next time you see all those birds flying around, you say, those dirty birds, think about how God cares about them. And he cares about your life. He's waiting for you to call upon him in your time of need. And so he can minister to you. I don't know what your need is this morning. Is it salvation? Are you backslidden? Is there some burden? Is there a bad situation? Some circumstances are beyond our control, but not beyond your ability to worry over. We need to do as Jesus' mother did and bring it to the Lord. There was a need and she brought it to Christ. That's what you and I need to do. Bring it to Jesus. Now we've looked at the importance of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him by receiving the free gift of salvation and following him. And if you don't have a relationship with him this morning, then you need to recognize your sinfulness. You need to trust in him as your savior today. 
If you do have a relationship with Christ, then don't tell me you're being obedient and submissive when you just want to distort and pervert the Scriptures. Oh, I wanted to say this because that's convenient for me. No, our faith and our practice should be based upon God's written word, and I trust that's your desire today. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, 